don't hear any more of those. Uh, it's sort of like those ball jokes, they eventually wear thin. <laughs> I must admit, though, during sabbatical, I did occasionally practice some papal gestures just in case. <laughs> at least to wait till the room's finished before I appear there. I apologize that the room is not quite finished. It is a great hall, but we are greatly pleased with it. Uh, there is one fabric panel that you can see in the middle of the back of the room, and uh, that's the only one done. The rest of these are what we call giving opportunities. You like to have your family <laughs> portrait gear, craft your own family crest. Over $100,000, we would be glad to accommodate you. Actually, there will be those fabric panels eventually throughout the room uh, in what uh, the uh, artists and architects refer to, I think, as teal. It's a color. <laughs> Uh, it's a great room. I'm very pleased with it, and we will be finished by October. We're going to dedicate this space in November, uh, but we needed the space to go ahead and begin today, so we began incompletely. Um, I know there's some disconcerting new presence of lights and cameras. I bear no responsibility for that, only I acquiesce to that. Um, there seems to be a desire to have some um, record of all the past deans, and I'm the only one living uh, <laughs> in the age of videotape. So that's what this is about. <clears throat> Plus, we're going to market them all over the world and make a million. <laughs> My father died on July 23rd, uh, 1990. It would be the most self-serving, narcissistic, and maudlin thing for me to talk publicly about that. But having been diagnosed as narcissistic, self-serving, and maudlin, I'm going to speak of nothing else. <coughs> I begin with a poem that I found this year that I used with a group that I was working with this year. It's a poem that captures you immediately and, and brings you into that rich, warm, uh, fuzzy place of nostalgia, but doesn't leave you there very long before it turns out of that warm, fuzzy place into a sort of hard, horrible thought. I share the poem with you as a beginning to my lecture about uh, the time my father died. <coughs> the poem is by Ray Bradbury. My father ties, I do not tie my tie. On some night long ago in June, I tried to tie my first tie snarled upon my vest, my hand, all thumbs, and presto, change of something awful this way comes. My father quietly came by and studied me and stood behind. Be blind, he said. Stay off mirrors. 
Let your fingers learn to do. His lesson lingers. What he said is true. I shut the him to help me over, up, around, under, out, somehow or not miraculously came about. There's nothing to it, said my dad. Now, son, you do it. No, I shut. And with one last dear blind perceiving, he taught my crippled fingers arts of weaving, then turned away. Well, to this day, how dare I boast, I cannot do it. I call that long-gone sweet tobacco-smelling ghost to help me through it. He helps me yet. Upon my neck he has wrapped the scent of his last cigarette. There is no death. For yesterday his phantom fingers came and helped me tuck and weave. If this be true, it is. He'll never die. My father ties. I do not tie. My top. I like Ray Bradbury, one who was taught by his own father to tie. Ty taught my brother and me on the same night. My brother's two years older than I, going out to his first addressed occasion, brought me in two years younger to learn at the same time. Much like the experience of many pre-adolescent boys, my father taught me to tie my tie to this day time I tie the way he taught me, I tie my shoes the way he taught me. The warm, nostalgic thought that my father ties, I do not tie my tie, keeps that sense of mysterious presence always behind me and yet before me as I look at myself in the mirror. But the horrible, cold reality is that my father has no business tying my tie. That as long as I live in the past nostalgia of his ghost behind me, reaching in front of me, staring over my shoulder as I look at myself, I'm acquainted with that continuing abdication of responsibility to my father. And if my tie is not perfect, it's his fault. And if the knot is uncomfortable, it's the way he tied it. And if it doesn't quite reach my belt, it's because his foresight was too short. As long as my father ties and I do not tie my tie, he is responsible. The second piece of it is that for American males, our ties have been an insidious Western evolution of this unconscious reality that men in our culture have been forced to cut off their heads from their bodies. And the remnant of that is these ties that our fathers have tied around our necks. The American male, before he can play, 
must leave his work and go home and take off his tie. Our ties have separated our heads from our bodies, like the beginning of the bicameral mind where the left brain has been dominant in that chronology and that facts and figures, logic and loyalty and steadfastness and has cut us off from the right side of our brain where there is spontaneity and laughter and play, creativity and poetry and art. And so our fathers have tied us up with their own neckties for another generation and cut our heads off from our bodies. And before we can play, we must remove our ties. My father died on July 23rd, a hot summer day in East Texas. It was his habit to go on a long walk every morning and come home and sit in his driveway in front of his garage door and drink two Paps Blue Ribbon beers. It wasn't his particular taste for Paps Blue Ribbon, it was the economic reality that cheap beer after a walk tastes as good as expensive beer. <laughs> sort of pontificated from the driveway in front of the garage door for the neighbors who walked along and the stray dogs who wandered through his yard. My father always had a prosaic way of saying I love dogs as long as they belong to the neighbors. Said, what kind of human being would ever let an animal live in his house? We didn't have dogs when I was growing up except one. We took it on a trip with us to New Mexico and it threw up in the car. <laughs> Causing a sort of ripple of hysteria to run through the back seat. <laughs> My brother then threw up. <laughs> and then I always following the leadership of my older brother. <laughs> created a kind of vomitory hat trick. <laughs> so my father pontificated in all of the dogs in the neighborhood that he loved to see as long as they were the neighbors. And people would talk with him and visit in the lawns in this smaller town in East Texas. And then he would go in and take his shower, surround his lazy boy recliner, with his current reading and turn on the baseball game. One of the great things that happened to my father late in his life was that the cable enabled him to watch baseball all day, every day. <laughs> Drink Pap's Blue Ribbon beer and, and read. My mother died five years ago and like many men of his generation, he had abdicated sole responsibility for the feminine to my mother. And my mother had acquiesced to receive it until about her um, 65th year. And she uh, gave it back to him. It was a difficult time for both 
them, it was not giving and receiving. Um, but he began to take it on for himself, hauntingly at first because it was so uncomfortable. Raised in a small town in western Arkansas, Greenwood by name, a coal mining town. Most of his ancestors have been coal miners in western Arkansas. His father, my grandfather, uh, was the proprietor of the only grocery store and dry goods store in Greenwood, Arkansas. And my father uh, worked in the coal mines uh, as a boy and then in his father's grocery store. My father and I <clears throat> shared an intuitive intimacy for most of our lives, but somehow, interestingly enough, and not coincidentally, with the death of my mother, our intimacy increased. Because with the abdication of the feminine to my mother, uh, the intimacy and, uh, yea, even the authenticity of a full relationship he participated in vicariously with my mother having the primary relationship with me. But after her death, it was amazing how much more extroverted and intimate he became, not by coincidence, I might add. Uh, he had taken his tie off several years before she died, and with her advocating her femininity back to him, and with her demise, he began to slowly develop some sense of intimacy, affection, and sharing of those fears, feelings, failures, and fantasies, the four Fs of intimacy that are so unreachable for most adult males in our culture. For our fathers, not we, have tied our ties around our necks and cut our heads off from our bodies. To where we don't express anything but the rational, the acceptable, and the logical. Before my father died, he had some surgery in June, and I was able to spend a week with him. My brother, the colonel, and I were able to spend a week with my father. It was a propitious week. And in that time, my brother, the colonel, had returned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base run computers larger than this great hall, where he directs and rules the hearts of every airman in the United States Air Force. And my father and I were left alone. I brought him home from the hospital. I fathered him home in his own automobile, frail, somewhat bent. And I brought him into his own house and dressed him in his own house coat, put him in his lazy boy little recliner, and we reclined together. And he had underneath the sink in his kitchen a brand new bottle of Weller's 107. He prided himself in drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon by day, uh, and at night, Ezra Brooks, the sort of same economic line with a Pabst Blue Ribbon by day. I don't mean to indicate that my father abused alcohol, uh, but 
with the removal of his tie, he finally gave himself permission uh, to play, and a beer by day and a drink by night was new behavior for him, and he settled in to a pattern of exercise, a liquid refreshment, a ball game, reading, and by night, a bit of Ezra Brooks. But that night, he brought out the Wellers 107. His son, the dean, <laughs> had come, and in his recognition of ecclesiastical writing, brought out the Wellers 107. Uh, we sat from uh, early in the evening till early in the morning, talking. For the last few years of my father's life, it was like there was some valve that had long been shut somewhere in his neck and had been loosened when he took off his tie. And he told me things that I had never known before, never heard before, in almost chronological order from the time that he was born through my mother's death and then even with the ensuing years after her death. I don't mean to indicate to you that I knew in that moment that I was having my last conversation with him. I've never been endowed with that kind of intuition or insight, but I was aware that I was having a first conversation with my father, and that is that he told me about his own long nights of quiet desperation, his own sense of fear, and failure, his own feelings about his fears and failures, and his own fantasies about what might await him beyond his biological death. He talked about all the things he'd seen in his life, uh, some of the obvious being uh, airplanes and indoor plumbing and heating. He talked, interestingly enough, uh, about his own wardrobe changes when he used to wear short pants and high top uh, shoes that buttoned and uh, sweaters and, and a single coat. It unlocks the mystery as to why old houses have such few closets is because people had no clothes and they would wear the same clothes all week. And then on Saturday night, literally before church on Sunday, they would bathe and that he would go to the well and get the water in a porcelain basin and bring it into the kitchen for his mother to heat on a cold stove. And he and his two brothers then would take baths in this porcelain basin uh, by the light of a kerosene lamp. And this is yet one generation above us. And he talked about how damn many clothes we all have. <laughs> as a sort of living metaphor of the opulence that he somehow always resented in the world and in life. Maybe because one of his failures was that he felt he had never been a financial success. He didn't tell me that until the last time I saw him and the first time we had a significant conversation. 
I presided uh, over a group last fall in a conversation about men. There were only men in the group, and one of the interesting discoveries in that group was the corporate confusion about intimacy. That men have a different understanding of intimacy than others. Which includes plants, animals, and women. There's a great confusion in males about between intimacy and loyalty. Went around the room and asked those men present uh, how many good friends do you have? Nobody got off one hand. Of uh, some 20 men in the room, sitting in a circle, going around, asking how many good friends do you have? Nobody got off one hand. Three of the five were from the past. The confusion was that men felt there are some guys I would do anything for. That's loyalty. But I would never tell them of my fears, my feelings, my failures, or my fantasies. I would be there for them. I would walk over a glass late at night to help them get out of jail or trouble. But I have yet to have a deep, intimate conversation about the long nights of quiet desperation. A man told us a story in that group about one of his good friends from college who came with his wife to visit. They were there three days. When they left, his wife said to him, what do you think about their daughter Susie and her difficulty in her marriage and their child and the failures they've had with his learning disability? And what do you think about your friend Frank and his financial reversal and his hospitalization for depression? He said, well, Frank never mentioned any of those things. <laughs> Frank's one of my best friends. He wouldn't share something like that with me. Our fathers have tied nooses around our necks. Cut our hearts off from our minds. And we men dwell in the realm of logic and loyalty rationality and denial. The last conversation I had with my father was the first conversation I've had with him about his own nights of quiet desperation, how he felt that his own life had been a failure. Because that grocery store in which he worked for my grandfather 
failed during the Depression when he was a sophomore at the University of Arkansas, and he left college to take a bread route. And he sold bread in Siloam Springs. He sold bread in Salisaw, Oklahoma. He sold bread in all of those small towns dotting the border between Oklahoma and Arkansas. The only job he could get. And how he had always wanted to go back to college and how he always wanted to get a graduate degree and perhaps teach or maybe study the law. And he had given up his life in order to try to make ends meet and vicariously participated in his own unfulfilled fantasies by my brother and me being the first on either side of our family to graduate from college and to go on each and both for graduate degrees. The failure he felt about the depression and the survival mentality that contaminated him the rest of his life, the fear of not knowing where his next meal was coming from and the humiliation that his own father had to move in with my mother and my father because he had lost his grocery store and could only survive through the humiliation of living with his son. All of the young men out of college that my father trained when he left the bread company to go to work for an oil company because they had college degrees and he didn't. And the humiliation that every boss he ever had, he trained. Uh, the sense that he had in himself that all of the religion that somehow I had been attracted to and the speaking and writing that I had done I never realized before until he told me in certain terms that I was speaking for him. It is a horrible thing to look at the facts of the day my father died. The facts are, having taken his walk and presided in his lawn chair in the driveway and consumed his two cans of Paps Blue Ribbon, before he went to his easy chair to read and drift away in the great American pastime, he went to take a shower. I received a phone call in Michigan from his doctor, who is also a friend of mine. And the doctor, in scientific prosaic terms, said that my father was found unconscious in his shower by his neighbor before he hadn't picked up his afternoon mail. And that he had had a massive, the words, used are still available to me, they will never leave me. He had a huge brain bleed on his left hemisphere, so extensive 
that it has forced his right hemisphere into an abnormal side. There was a question, of course, about extraordinary means. There was no question in my mind. They had been breathing for him, and the doctor said, would you like for us to continue breathing for him? And I said, absolutely not. Of course not. Take no extraordinary measures. Let's see if this is the day that he is to die. He died within minutes when they ceased to breathe for him. There is in me a kind of logical, rational, <coughs> stoic, denial that makes it very difficult for me to think about my father dying alone in a shower of a massive brain bleed. I think I would rather describe it as a red sun setting over the left hemisphere. The inevitable rhythm of life and a sort of sadness at the end of the day when the only possibility for the sun to rise in the right hemisphere is for the red sun to blot out the day of failure and the day of disappointment and the day of desolation so that a red sun set on the left hemisphere beneath a waterfall and the water was the cleansing water of creation. No less than the water that God made into a mist and combined with the dust and made a clay of the first Adam. No less a water than that water of chaos that was ordered in the making of the great oceans, no less the water from the womb of his own mother which broke in the rhythm of time in order for him to be in history. And so that a, a man might have a mother and a mother might have a child and a child might have brothers and a man might take a wife and a, a husband and wife might have a child and that I might have a mother and father my own children and them their own father and mother there's a water no less of his baptism in a small Methodist church in western Arkansas in a flatboard white frame church with no electricity or heat. 
the cold water from a porcelain basin. I seek to believe that my red sun set in the left hemisphere beneath the waterfall and as he rested beneath that waterfall, it cleansed him. It cleansed him from all of the hard, scrabble work of the coal mines and it cleansed him from all of the difficult and long hours in his father's grocery store and with that waterfall oozed out of him all of his disappointment at the great depression and the great depression that came to him at his disappointment and out of him finally came all of his failure and all of his feelings and all of his frustration and finally out of him came his fantasies that were unlived. They took over, finally, his own creativity, his own spontaneity, his own poetry. For my father died in a red sunset on the left hemisphere beneath the bad waters of all the human beings that have ever lived and finally he was cleansed from all his desolation and in so doing the sun rose over the right hemisphere and finally he had become that which he was fully created to be. If you desire to wait until you retire to take off your tie and get in touch with your own resource of the bio-rhythm that is available to you in heartbeat and breath, which is metaphor for the freshness of life that comes in every beat of your heart and every fresh breath drawn, and that even in the depression and desolation that there is a new beginning for each of us and that such things as affection and affirmation and intimacy are available to us to complete our lives and to heal the contamination of the lack of oxygen that has been created in this western hemisphere that has cut our heads off from our bodies. If you want to wait till you retire to begin to live, you may do so if you live until you retire. Or if you want to wait until the left hemisphere of your brain is so satiated with logic and loyalty that it must finally be overcome by a setting sun, you may wait. Or if you want to live continually allowing the ghost of the generation of males who have stood behind us and tied our ties, 
and created a noose around our neck, you may do so. But I, for one, am not going to wait. I have not waited. In spite of my deep affection and love for my father, the man who told me when I was in the sixth grade to not kiss him anymore, the last time I saw him, I kissed him on the lips and told him I loved him. I'm not waiting. I understand that his coffin, I thought, was to kiss his lips and tell him I love him. I didn't wait. By God. So I'm not waiting to move into my right hemisphere in my own shower because I am a man of water. I've been baptized and I am not going to hold the desolation and the fear. I'm not going to be overcome by the depression of the difficulty of life. I'm not going to be a whiner. I'm going to go ahead and live. My Father, God rest his soul, because of his life and death, has taught me, my Father does not tie my time. 